0: Now, I have to tell you, it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. Welcome to another edition of our State of Reform podcast. My name is D.J. Wilson. In this episode, we sit down with the vice chair of the House Health and Wellness Committee in Washington State. Representative Nicole Macri represents the Capitol Hill area, the 43rd Legislative District, one of Washington state's most densely populated, one of the most vibrant, diverse communities on the west coast of the United States. Representative Macri is part of the executive leadership team at the Downtown Emergency Services Corporation, which is a homeless advocacy and emergency shelter uh, nonprofit in downtown Seattle. So with that perspective as one of the leaders in addressing homelessness in Puget Sound, Representative Macri now serves as Vice Chair of the House Health and Wellness Committee where she's working on policy in Washington State that not only impacts healthcare, but gets into the mental health part of the system as well. So without further ado, this is Representative Nicole Macri, Democrat from the 43rd Legislative District in Seattle and Vice Chair of the House Health and Wellness Committee in Washington State. Representative Nicole Macri from the 43rd Legislative District. Thanks for making time to be with us.
1: Thanks, DJ. It's nice to be here.
0: So tell us first, where is the 43rd? What does it look like culturally, demographically? Who do you represent?
1: Sure. So I like to think of the 43rd Legislative District as the heart of Seattle. Um, There's uh, several kind of landmarks that are familiar to many Washingtonians. So it includes the Pike Place Market, um, and it goes north from there to through many of our historic Seattle neighborhoods. I myself live on Capitol Hill. Um, The University of Washington campus is within the 43rd Legislative District And and neighborhoods north of there, so neighborhoods Wallingford, Fremont, um, Ravenna, et cetera, and some other landmarks like the Seattle Art Museum, Aquarium, et cetera, all within the 43rd Legislative District.
0: There's a lot of attention, obviously, on a legislator's legislative responsibilities, but when we're lucky enough to not be in session, what do you do for a day job?
1: I am the deputy director at the Downtown Emergency Service Center, known in Seattle as DESC, which is a primarily a homeless service agency. We're a behavioral health organization um, that serves folks with long histories of homelessness, mental illness, and substance use disorders, and provide a whole array of services, including emergency shelter and street outreach, crisis diversion services, emergency shelter, and um, probably most significantly supportive housing. Mm-hmm.
0: You are vice chair of the health care committee, health and wellness committee in the mm-hmm. house. What is, what is sort of the biggest thing that you have learned about that leadership role there that maybe you didn't foresee as a relatively new member of the legislature? What, what is that like as vice chair of that committee?
1: Um, I think the key to being vice chair is establishing a good relationship with the chair. And we have a strong chair in healthcare, um, Eileen Cody, who has a lot of experience, I'd say, um, as a policymaker, probably the most informed and influential um, policymaker around healthcare in the state of Washington. And having um, an open mind and a a deep desire to learn a lot of new things, Um, I came into this role with a pretty good grounding in our behavioral health care system and certainly in some of our public insurance programs, our Medicaid programs, as they relate to some of the lowest income and highest need um, folks less, I came in less um, informed about the dynamics around private health insurance, some of the issues um, that are impacting our providers around the state, and learning a lot about those areas. And so to me, having an open ear, an open mind about issues, a willingness to learn, and um, really synthesize information from different perspectives has been really key. Yeah.
0: It's been said that Representative Eileen Cody is the only person that Speaker Frank Chop really fears. Uh, What is, how would you characterize working with Eileen Cody? And and then next, how do you characterize working with your seatmate, Speaker Chop?
1: Yeah, well, I feel really fortunate to be able to work with both of them. I feel fortunate to have the speaker as my seatmate mostly. I mean, it's great that he's the speaker, but I think it's mostly because our our values align. And I'd say that's really, from my observation and from talking with both of them, um, what I sense in terms of the relationship between Representative Cody and Speaker Chop is that they just have a deep mutual respect. Um, there's a lot of values alignment. Um, they've worked t- together for over two decades. And so coming in as a new person in a dynamic uh, like that, getting to work with really strong leaders on on an issue that may be one of the highest priority issues for Washingtonians, their ability to access health care when they need it. I just feel really, really fortunate. So I spend a lot of time trying to learn from those who have been working in this area for a long time.
0: Yeah. You know, it, it, it is interesting that you came via election. So many members get appointed these days. Do you think that that difference between fighting a tough primary and earning your seat the old-fashioned way versus a partisan appointment. Do you think that that changes the way that a member represents his or her district?
1: I think it does make an impact on, on a member if they're elected or appointed, I had a really hard campaign, um, nine months campaigning before I was elected. Um, It gave me a tremendous opportunity to really get to know my district and my constituents and what voters in the 43rd district um, really prioritized and um, what they really wanted their representative to do. I have so many authentic relationships with constituents in the 43rd district that I know I would not have had if I went through an appointment process. Um, As you alluded to, in strongly um, partisan districts, like the district that I represent, that's very strongly Democratic, if someone is appointed, often their um, subsequent race is not very competitive. um, And it means that often they just don't get that authentic chance to get out in the district. Mm -hmm. You can create opportunities to do that, but that first campaign, um, knocking doors, going to community meetings, really introducing yourself to the community in a new way um, as a potential elected official gives you the kind of experience that you'll never get back. It was, I will say, probably the best experience of my life. The hardest, um, but the best.
0: Yeah. How... I know that plays out in subtle ways in caucus chambers, but I'm wondering how there's such an insurgence of new blood in a caucus. It's had a lot of turnover in recent years, regardless of how they've come to their seat. Uh, A lot more young people uh, in many ways have, have come in who are in some ways agitating for a different approach to policy. How would you sort of characterize some of those Natural tensions within a, the House Democratic caucus between, you know, on the one hand, people who might have supported Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, or people who are a little more left or a little more moderate. How do you sort of point to those, again, natural tensions?
1: Um, I think leadership and team building are really essential factors. I have loved serving in the House um, Democratic caucus because there is a strong sense of team and mutual support for one another. And while everyone may not agree to the down to the very detail on, on certain policies, there is deep mutual respect. And I think really, as I said earlier, strong values alignment among members, and that makes a difference. And I think our whole leadership team helps to instill that. So starting um, with Speaker Chopp. Um, and I would say Representative Richelli, who's our majority whip, um, has done a lot of um, great work to keep us together as a team. Um, it's something that I think many of us are thinking about as we look at the primary results and the prospect of um, potentially having a handful, or maybe several, new members join the House Democratic Caucus. Um, what impacts that'll have on our team dynamic? And ha- and a lot of us are committed to making sure that new members come in feeling like they are really a part of the team.
0: Yeah, how do you? It's great that you mentioned uh, Representative Richelli, who I go back with to our days at Gonzaga together. How would you characterize his leadership? Uh, he, he's been in a lot of different sort of inside positions with Senator Cantwell, former State Senator Lisa Brown. So he understands the institution. He understands kind of the dynamic. But he's of a different generation than than Speaker Chopp. How do you characterize his leadership?
1: I would say Marcus is, is a great um, champion in terms of democratic values. His leadership really starts with values, and he grounds us in the values and why we have all worked so hard to get to Olympia and why we stay so many weeks and hours away from our families um, because we believe that we can um, make changes that will that will strengthen the experience and quality of life um, for folks across Washington State. So I think being a values-driven leader um, is really, really important. And he has a lightheartedness to him. I really appreciate his Focus on thinking about new ways to stay connected with our constituencies across Washington State, thinking more strategically about messaging and transparency. And I think there are a lot of younger members in the caucus. Um, We have a lot more uh, diverse caucus in terms of gender, race, ethnicity, age. And I think that really um, strengthens it. I mean, creating... um, a platform for really mutual respect and desire to learn from different members about their experience, background, the areas of the state that they represent. I think, I think Marcus and others on leadership have helped to set a good platform for a healthy, well-functioning caucus. Yeah,
0: good. So often as... Relatively new legislators, there's a steep uphill climb to kind of figure out the institution and figure out some of the policy dynamics. You've established yourself, I think, though, as a very thoughtful uh, legislator, willing to kind of mix it up a little bit. Um, What is on your personal individual radar screen for the 2019 legislative session?
1: I'm really focused on the issues that are most urgently impacting my constituents in the 43rd District and my city in Seattle. And I think uh, we're not alone in some of the challenges that we're facing in Seattle. So I um, am looking at our behavioral health system and what we can do. It really breaks my heart to to see what um, a disarray and disservice that we are doing in Washington State to folks who are living with serious mental illnesses, um, people who are living with untreated substance use disorders, more and more of whom are living on the streets of our cities. Anyone who's gone to Seattle or watched the evening news can see just the incredible number of tents that are just on our sidewalks in downtown Seattle. Um, It wasn't like that a few years ago. And being here in Spokane just last evening as I was walking through downtown, seeing so many people um, in their sleeping bags in doorways and knowing the climate here is not like Seattle. And while the weather is mild now in just a few weeks, it's, it's not going to be very safe to be outdoors at night.
0: Do you find, I think that the, the topic of homelessness is clearly on a lot of policymakers minds. You live in that space professionally uh, outside of the legislature do you feel like there is enough depth of knowledge on this topic within the legislature itself to really drive at solutions? Or is it just so complicated? And with a citizen legislature, you know, with 147 members, there are a lot of different levels of experience and perspectives and competence. Is it just maybe beyond the state legislature itself to, to sort of solve? What, what, how do you sort mm-hmm. of view that?
1: I think the urgency is great for the state to be a better partner with our local communities. We're hearing about it um, from local elected officials and from residents across the state that we are experiencing a housing crisis in and in, in the worst case where more and more folks have no place at all to be and really are putting um, themselves in grave danger every day just to survive. And we have more and more working families um, who can't live close to where they go to school, where they work, adding time away from family to get to work, um, adding transportation costs and adding a lot of insecurity and anxiety to their lives. So um, this is a statewide issue. There are many, many legislators um, who are interested. I've talked with legislators in both chambers, on both sides of the aisle, who are committed to finding common ground on this issue. So I think there is a good understanding of the problem. I think there are there's less consensus about the, the first steps we should take towards a solution, um, but I think people are eager to learn. And we say it's complicated, it actually isn't that complicated. Right now we have a severe housing shortage in Washington state. Um we have data from our department of commerce and other sources that can show us where the the housing shortages are most severe. We need to create more housing. How we create more housing I think is the question for consideration. What role should the state play? How much of the housing should be um, housing that's created with public resources. Um, how do we partner with um, private home builders, apartment builders? How do we partner with local government to ensure that zoning and permitting um, supports not only production of housing, but the production of housing that middle class families can afford, that low wage workers can afford, and that can help us address our homelessness challenges across the state. Um, those are. I think the places where we um, hope to have conversation and debate during the 2019 session. Let me
0: drill down the, on this question of policy related to homelessness because you you live it and you work on it in, in the legislature. It seems like when we read the consultants reports from the city of Seattle that there's the, whether there's enough money or not being spent on this, that it is at least not being spent very effectively or efficaciously the report says, I think, very clearly that money is not the problem; that it's just not being spent well. We have had, for a number of, I think, administrations, a number of maybe generations, sort of the opinion that if we 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 just need to spend more. But we have not appeared as a community to have policies in place that actually fix it, regardless of the fiscal commitment. Do you see it sort of in a similar way? And help me understand. What kinds of policy discussions we should be talking about if it's not really a fiscal problem?
1: I think that the consultants who came a few years ago really did a disservice to our community and how they framed their message. They were were correct in that um, our homeless response system um, in King County, which is where they um, looked, was not really designed in the most effective way to um, move people who are homeless into housing in a rapid way. Those reports that were created two years ago or so um, drove some planning both at the county and city level um, for major systems reforms that have been put in place. Um, At the same time, in those last couple or three years, the housing crisis got so severe um, and started impacting the middle class in a way that folks started to take note that oh wow this this crisis is is severe and it's and maybe there is some connection between um, rates of homelessness and housing cost and and housing supply so the latest data we have is that the crisis response system in King County for homelessness. Um, has dramatically improved its efficiency in moving people to housing. I think a 35% improvement rate um, in terms of moving people into housing. And that was because of, I think, good leadership at the local level to drive systems change, to do performance-based contracting, um, to do competitive requests for proposals, for funding programs that demonstrated strategic approaches And what it also demonstrates is that the rise in homelessness far outpaced the increases in investments to address homelessness. So I think there's better understanding now that we have improved effectiveness, efficiency in the system, and that there may be need to look at resource because it is unclear we, can, we, we should always be looking at how we improve our system of efficiency, mm-hmm. but it is unclear that we will ever get to the full scope of the problem um, without scaling up some of the most effective interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes mostly interventions that get people back into housing quickly, like supportive housing for people who are living with serious mental illnesses, who've been homeless for a long time. Interventions for homeless families who are working, like rapid rehousing vouchers, to get people back into private sector housing. But I do think this is a shortcoming of government in the sense that government does not do a good job kind of tooting its own horn and helping bring the public along and understanding um, how they are restructuring and changing um, their systems to respond to growing challenges. Mm-hmm. It's like catchy for a newspaper to say, resources are, investments are up, but homelessness is up. Mm-hmm. It must be that money won't solve the problem. But I think that is a very unsophisticated way to analyze the yeah. situation.
0: As deputy director of the Downtown Emergency Sur- Services Corporation, I mean, that organization and the leadership you're a part of is. Uh, Really doing amazing work. It's very, it's heralded statewide, and really in in a number of other urban areas as doing a great job on in crisis and getting people into a more stable setting. I'm wondering, but but that is very sort of uh, very much dealing with the symptom and trying to fix it after the fact. And growth management act and zoning is not your area of expertise necessarily, and that's a local issue more than a state issue. But I'm wondering what thoughts you have. And and the Growth Management Act largely is about the fringe where rural meets urban mm-hmm. or suburban. It's not the downtown Seattle, it generally doesn't deal with downtown Seattle. But I'm wondering, you know, do cities need more tools, particularly the city of Seattle? Should they be pushed either through incentives or through some other mechanism to do more in their zoning? Because the city of Seattle has really struggled with this question on zoning for a host of reasons for a long time. Uh, It seems like they could probably do a better job at that policy level. What do you make of these Mm. questions?
1: Yeah, I think the challenge of growing cities like Seattle um, is not dissimilar to what we see in cities around the country. This really is a national problem, and many cities are dealing with it on a city-by-city or region-by-region or state-by-state basis. We're not really facing it as if it was a national housing crisis. So that is one challenge. I would say that the Growth Management Act actually... um, puts Washington in a better position than many other states um, to deal with these issues around um, zoning and affordability compared to other places in that we have set out a framework and a vision that um, people should live in cities and towns and that we should protect our agricultural and wild lands across the state. Now, The devil's in the details, of course, and there are many points of conflict, as you say, on the edges of those urban growth areas and the pressures um, to build out further. But I think if we stay committed to that vision um, and we work with cities to make sure that they have the right um, incentives and tools. So there are things that I think are contradictory for cities and counties in terms of how they what authority the state has given them to raise revenue, um, how that aligns or conflicts with the Growth Management Act, and how they are positioned to engage their residents in conversation about building um, the communities that best serve the people who live there. I think we can do a lot of work uh, at aligning these incentives and... Um, disincentives to local communities for supporting affordability and connectedness across the state. So I think providing more support for planning around affordable housing, um, providing resource from the state to incentivize the creation of affordable housing, asking cities to work with us to make sure that we are building places for people to live within towns and cities and protecting um, our agricultural and wildlands, I think think we have a lot of opportunity. I've been working with a number of legislators um, who work more in these areas, both in the House and the Senate, to think about a more sophisticated package than we have in the past. So I would say the things that we likely are going to prioritize um, out of the House Democrats are looking at specifically the housing needs of people living with mental illness. We have to bring huge reforms to our mental health system, and creating housing for people with mental illness is going to be a key part of that. Uh, We have big challenges with Western State Hospital, and we are not going to solve those challenges unless we create um, infrastructure in our local communities to take the pressure off of Western State um, in terms of, Really being the only place um, where people with the most severe mental illnesses can go. We need to build capacity both for inpatient hospital beds as well as outpatient care. But people cannot make good use of outpatient care if they don't have a place to live. And so we need to create those opportunities for people living with mental illness. We need to... Invest in housing for the most vulnerable, lowest-income people. In in my school district in Seattle, one of 13 students is homeless. Wow. Um, over the course of the year, one out of 13 students is going to experience homelessness in the Seattle school district. So um, how are we as a state responding to that? We put over $13 billion additional dollars in public education over the last five years. The school district that's closest to my house... Has an extraordinary number of homeless students because they serve an area that has several family shelters in it. Hmm. And I am thinking, how are these kids going to make good use of this education when they have? No place to live, so we need to put our attention to how we're supporting families, particularly with school-age children and and younger in in um, in getting housing. But we we can't solve this problem through government investment alone. Um, we are going to need to figure out how we create an environment where housing production doesn't just happen at the highest income levels. We've seen unprecedented. Um, creation, construction of housing in Seattle, for instance, and over 90% of it has been at the luxury level. Um, And that is for a number of reasons. It has to do with zoning and density, and it has to do uh, with the infrastructure that exists in cities and towns and the severe lack of investment at both the state and federal level in community uh, infrastructure. Um, And it has to do with the incentives and disincentives to create different kinds of uses on properties.
0: Something you're passionate about, clearly. I mean, it comes through. Representative Nicole Macri, vice chair of the House Healthcare and Wellness Committee, thank you very much for making time with us. Thank you. This episode was produced by Emily Berger, myself, and a team here at State of Reform that includes Kariana Wilson, Margie High, Rita Waldrop, Laura Lumberg, Aaron Horton, Brandon Johnson, and a number of other folks working to try to bridge the gap between healthcare and health policy. You can read our stuff at stateofreform.com, sign up for our email, Five Things We're Watching, and join us at one of our conferences across the western United States in cities like Los Angeles. Austin, Texas, Honolulu, Hawaii, Seattle, Washington, and others. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe to us on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be in touch soon. Thanks again.